there's another book more recently that I've read by a guy named Atul Gawande. And he talks in his book, Being Mortal, about all the ways in which our culture attempts and in some ways succeeds in buffering us from the reality of death. So one of the things he shows is that both death and dying have been put off to the institutions. So in that sense, they've been institutionalized, right? Very few of us will care for a dying family member, whereas not too long ago, uh, we couldn't imagine anything else. It was just something that we would have experienced and that even my children at their age, uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they would have not only seen death, but participated uh, in the act, in the journey of dying in those last days. And some of you uh, who have, some of you have experienced that, and you'll notice that many times, those are the moments when we are jarred from this foolishness, from this illusion that death is far off, that death is something that we don't experience. The other thing in our culture that makes it difficult for us to think about death is that we idolize youth. Have you noticed this? We, we idolize youth. We hold it up as uh, the epitome of all things vibrant, And in fact, uh, the Bible has a different perspective on this as well. And so really, what both Ernest Becker is getting at and Atul Gawande is getting at in their own way is that in a sense, although none of us would deny the reality of death, we live in a sort of functional denial of death. It doesn't affect us day to day. So really, we tend to live our lives as though we were uncertain about the most certain thing, which is death. Now, in a sense, we're uncertain of the timing of our death, but we are certain of the reality of our death. And in the passage today, the teacher in Ecclesiastes gives us really two sledgehammer blows to our tidy and shallow view we often embrace in our day-to-day lives. And then he does, though, thankfully, give us a way forward in between these two realities. If you haven't been with us, the writer to the Ecclesiastes, the teacher, is after one question, and that is, how do we live a meaningful life? When we observe things around us, it seems as though since we die and since we're not in control, life can't be meaningful. And yet he's been leading us eventually, increasingly, to look beyond life that we can observe to actually pay attention to what God might say above the sun or beyond the sun. And now he's circling back in this last part of the book to his very first observation, and that is everyone dies no matter what, so why try? And so the way I'm saying it here in verses 1 through 6 is our first point, and that is this, simply the certainty of death is what he draws out. Remember, keep this in mind, His interest is a meaningful life, but he comes back yet again to the certainty of death in the quest for a meaningful life. So if you look here at verses 1 through 6, no doubt it can be some depressing stuff. My summary is that it doesn't matter if you're righteous or unrighteous. It doesn't matter if you live a life of integrity or not, you die. And so the preacher's not saying that there's no sense at all, he is saying that to us, it doesn't always make sense. 
So when he observes, he's saying, I know there is sense to this all, but when I just observe that both the righteous and the unrighteous die, it doesn't really make sense. He then says it's in God's hands, but then he moves on. So us Christians now in, in this day and age where we have not just Ecclesiastes, not just the Old Testament, but we have Jesus and the Gospels and the, the writers of the apostles, the writings of the apostles, right? When, when we have these now, it's, it can be tempting for us to short-circuit reality at this point and, and grab onto this, this phrase of everything's in God's hands and then live a shallow, unreflective life about the powerful nature of our mortality and how that can shape our life. And the whole book, I've been inviting you not to do that. As we've been following the writer, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he's been inviting us not to short circuit and go to the simple answer, but to sit in the challenge of our mortality and our uncertainty. And so it's interesting in the book, the writer, the teacher keeps asking, who knows, who knows, who knows? And yet here he turns this refrain of who knows in verse five to answer a question, what the living people do know. So in verse 5, he says, for the living know that they will die. Now, if you haven't been with us or you haven't been paying attention as we've been going through the passages, one of the things he does is throws his hands up as he's teaching and juxtaposing these realities of a meaningful life with a seeming meaningless uh, observation of life. And he keeps asking the question, well, who knows? Who knows? Almost in a rhetorical way. And when I was reading through this week, I said, oh, look, finally something that he knows. And then I kept reading that we will die. Okay, I'm with you. So yet they know that they will die, he says. And in verse 3, he rightly says that this thing is evil, that death is evil. The reason I want to bring this up is because some will talk today about the certainty of death and say that death is natural. It's not natural. In fact, it is, it is the most unnatural thing that can happen to a human being. Now, we can sentimentalize death by saying it's a natural thing. And we can talk about the circle of life in a way with music in the background that makes us feel sweet and comfortable. But the reality is anyone who's been at a funeral and looked in the casket knows this is not natural. This is absolutely not natural. You see, sin is anti-creational. Sin is a parasite that latches on to God's good creation and destroys it and distorts it. So death is not natural. And that's why he says this is an evil thing. Right? It's certain. Death is certain. But it's not natural. And then verses 5 and 6, if we read them, he says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. I'm struck by this because if you're like me, When I'm living life, the the things that I love, the things that I'm passionate about, the things that I'm angry about, the things that I cry out over because of injustice, the deep love that I have for my closest relationships, it all feels so real to me. And it is real. 
which is why verses 5 and 6 are so poignant. Because what he's saying is the time is coming when all the things you think are the most important in the world, all your strongest emotions, your love, your hate, your jealousy, the time is coming when they will all go cold and vanish and be forgotten. Now, if you've been with us, this might be where we would hit the rewind button and say, so don't stake your life on those things. Right? If you build your identity on a cause, or if you build your identity on accomplishments, it will be taken from you. And then what will happen? This idea of, of remembering one's death is really important. I've been, I was talking with Ben, uh, ben, Benjamin Kant, who was up here earlier, and he told me about this app on his phone called We Croak. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You get five notifications at randomized times, different times every day, and the reminder that pops on your phone simply says, remember, we die. Okay? What's a word that you would use for that, right? You might say morbid. But it's, I would use the word helpful. It's actually very helpful. And it's accompanied with quotes uh, from philosophers and such on death. For example, the quote last night was, no one can confidently say that he will still be living tomorrow. No one can confidently say that he will still be living tomorrow. I know that that's true. I know that it should feel more weighty to me than it does. But to me, it just sounds, hmm. But the writer to Ecclesiastes, if he were here, would come up and he would grab my jacket and he would, maybe my face, and he would look me in the face and he would say, this is a gift. Pay attention to this quote. In Ecclesiastes 7.4, he basically does that. In the New Living Translation, Verse 4 says, a wise person thinks a lot about death. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, the psalmist says in Psalm 90. And so the first sledgehammer to our false view of a tidy and completely explainable world is death. How are you going to explain that when it comes upon you suddenly? Well... First, you would do good to reflect that the only thing certain in life is that you will die. So here's a good question that you can ask yourself. What certainties do you rely on in your day-to-day life? What certainties do you rely on? Do, Do they serve to protect you from the only true certainty, which is that you will die? Just reflect on that this week. What am I relying on? day to day. What am I most certain of today? What am I most certain of today? Oftentimes, I am absolutely certain that in the seven-minute drive from my house to my office, I'll be alive when I get there. Thousands of people are certain of that every day, and they die. It's fascinating that there's a part of me that thinks, not me, not me. So, Reflect with me this week. What are you so certain of? So the second thing is, he teaches us about the uncertainties of life. So if there's certainty of death, but then also when we're alive, 
it's filled with so many other uncertainties. So if you look in verses 11 and 12, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, certainly, if you make a list of the things you're most certain of, uh, you would be certain that the race, in fact, does go to the swift, that the, race, the battle, in fact, does go to the strong, that the bread does go to the wise, and the riches do go to the intelligent, and that the favor does go to those with knowledge. And he says, not so fast. Now, remember, it's the same guy who wrote Proverbs. So when you reflect on this, we realize we need Proverbs, we need Ecclesiastes, and we need Song of Songs and Job. All of the wisdom literature, all of the poetry is meant to help us understand that we do not have it figured out. We need all of those books. And so here, he's just reminding us that time and chance happen to them all. But in a world of statistics and in a world of theoretical physics, we don't believe that. Right? I mentioned the first week the trinity of modernism, which is control, freedom, and progress. We always believe we're in control. We always believe we are free. And we always believe things are going to get better. And we just live that way. And I can say a lot of things have gotten better. Think about modern medicine or modern architecture or engineering. The fact that we have air conditioning. When I moved to Florida four years ago, I never knew how grateful I would be for air conditioning. I am truly grateful for these types of things. And so that's not what he's getting at or what I'm getting at. What he is getting at is that we are not in control. Situations arise. Circumstances change. Unforeseen events occur. And in a culture of control, we can be led to a life of presumption. We just presume upon progress. Things don't always get better. That's one of the things he's trying to tell us. If we know more things, it doesn't always mean that things will get better, but we really kind of think it does. We've been trained to think, if I just knew one more thing, I would be okay. I would be more certain. I would have more control. So question then, what strategies do you and the people around you use to try to control the deep and profound uncertainties of life? What mechanisms, what things, what strategies do you employ when you face your uncertainty to try to get that certainty back? It'll tell you a lot. It tells me a lot, as I've reflected this week, when I'm uncertain about something, when I'm uncertain about how someone will view me, when I'm uncertain if I will be successful at something, when I just presume upon the fact that my children will be healthy when I get back home or that I'll make it to and from. Right? When, when the thought of death, when the thought of losing my cherished possessions enters my mind, I do employ strategies to buffer that thought, and so do you. But what do you go to is what the, the teacher would have us ask in verse 11 and 12. Because even though we have Proverbs... He's pointing out to us that the race doesn't always go to the swift. And that battle doesn't always go to the strong. So be prepared when it doesn't. So first, 
he's saying there's the certainty of death. That's the first sledgehammer of our false view of a neat and tidy and completely explainable world. The second sledgehammer is not only is death certain on the other side, there are a lot of other uncertainties in life. But then the third point that he makes in this passage is that a life well lived in between the two is possible. So you got these guardrails, certainty of death. We know this is going to happen. And as we live life, there's a lot of uncertainties. And yet there is a life well lived, he says. It starts off in verse 7 and goes through verse 10. If you look at the first word in verse 7, it's go. This is an imperative. This is not just an observation. This is a command. He's telling you, go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. And he goes on. So what started as advice in the sage's teaching, if you've been with us throughout weeks, uh, the past few weeks, he'll get to these so-called carpe diem passages. When we should seize the day. That we should not live life for gain, but we should receive it as gift. This is the new motto. This is the motto that the teacher of Ecclesiastes is beating into our hearts and minds. Is that life is not about gain, it's about gift. That's what he keeps telling us over and over and over. And he keeps reminding us because it's so elusive. But this is the first time that he starts it off not with an observation, but first with a command and then a truth. And he says, go, eat your bread with joy. And on this last point of a life well lived, I've been so helped by a resource I want to share with you uh, in case you're interested uh, a guy named David Gibson uh, wrote a book. It came out last year on Ecclesiastes called Living Backwards. And it's been one of the most helpful things uh, in my preparation. It's not a commentary. It's more of a reflection uh, on Ecclesiastes. And it's, it's, I'd highly recommend the book. And I'm going to quote him a couple of times moving forward. And it, I think it's so excellent. I wanted to recommend it to you. But as you read these verses, if you just took verses 7 through 10 and you removed the author and put them online somewhere, they could easily be sentimentalized, right? Taken out of context, it can become not just sentimentalized, but man, humanity, could be put at the center. And if you and I right now view the te- this teaching in Ecclesiastes as merely the teacher saying, hey, listen, the best thing to do is to squeeze every ounce out of life because you only live once. If we read that as the pinnacle of his thought, we have missed everything. Right? That's a surface level reading. We would completely miss the point. Because actually what he would say is if we try to squeeze every ounce out of life apart from the giver of life as enjoyment as his children, we'll miss the ultimate true gift. So if we can sentimentalize this, we can also over-spiritualize this. There are two things that we can do. The other thing we could do is we could be so scared to enjoy food and drink and relationships and fun and driving fast and going skiing. We can so over-spiritualize life that we view those things as something that God just kind of puts up with. Well, he'll let you go on vacation, right? He'll let you enjoy a glass of wine. He'll let you do that. But really, that's not, that's not spiritual, Well, we shouldn't over-spiritualize this either, right? Because we'd be missing that these very physical examples of eating and drinking and wearing fancy clothes and loving 
are a representative list of what it looks like to love life and to live it to the full. That's what he's saying. So as one example, uh, he talks about the, the idea of always, uh, you let your garments be always white. So in this day and age, white garments would have been fancy. Uh, they would have been something you wore to a celebration because they would have been bright and vibrant. And he says, let not oil be lacking on your head. So there are a couple of different ways to understand this. Uh, but at minimum, one of the things that would happen in a hot uh, culture uh, is that in the clothing you would wear, it could stick to you. And so people would put oil under their clothing in the hot months during the day so that would not stick to them. And so here he's getting at comfort. He's getting at enjoying, uh, in that sense, a technology in order to relieve your clothes sticking to you. Right? And then, of course, oil also is a very celebratory uh, good. So in other words, God is not stingy. Dress up. Enjoy life. And to think that you're more spiritual than that is not good because you're trying to be more spiritual than God. So don't over-spiritualize it, but don't sentimentalize it. We should love life and live it to the full. And when God made the world, he made it good. And no amount of being spiritual can change the fact that God put you in a physical world with eyes and with food and with drink and with art and with relationships and with music. You can't get beyond that. You can't get out of your own body. And if you really want to, it's sad because in the resurrection, you're going to get it back. Sin distorts everything, but it does not uncreate everything. God's actually recreating everything. And to live a life meaningfully in between the sledgehammer of death and uncertainty is to enjoy God's gifts in the moment, to receive them. So tapping into the preacher's worldview, here's a quote from David Gimson. He, he expounds upon verses 7 through 10, and he says, Ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, Go to the theater, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until it makes you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, call your parents, ring a letter, uh, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plant a church, start a school, speak about Christ. Travel to somewhere you've never been. Adopt a child. Give away your fortune and then some. Shape someone else's life by laying down your own. What can you add to the list? Jonathan Edwards, his sixth resolution, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Right? We've all heard the advice uh, from older people or a dying person that basically goes something like this. If I knew then what I know now, I'd enjoy my kids more. I'd spend more time building meaningful relationships and so on, right? This is the voice of experience. We've heard it so many times, but now the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us this is the wise voice of God as well, to enjoy life. Now, a word of caution. If we ended the sermon right now, there would be nothing necessarily distinctly Christian about anything that I've said. Right? Have you noticed that? Anyone can be in here. 
wouldn't matter what you believe, you could leave inspired. It's still true, and it still is robustly Christian, but not yet explicitly Christian. After all, what does it mean to love life and enjoy it when we're going to die, and when ultimately, as Christians, we're called to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? So won't these other things get in the way? Now this, this is the question we could ask ourselves more frequently. How do I enjoy deeply my relationships, my family, my kids, all of the gifts that God has given me, and yet still love him with all my mind, all my strength, all my, all my soul, all my heart? Well, the beautiful thing is that they actually go together quite nicely. Because as one commentator points out, in the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. In the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. Why? Because you're only meant to worship the creator, not the creation. And so you may think that you're enjoying the creation when in fact you're worshiping the creation. And then all of a sudden your joy begins to go. And it's fleeting, right? Not at first, right? Let's say you make your God accumulation, buying lots of stuff. Or you make your God uh, sex or relationships or family, whatever it is. And then you cling on to it and you need it more and more and more. And as you need it more, it gives less and less and less. That's what happens when you worship creation. And so therefore, to truly take the writer, the teacher, at his word in verses 7 through 10, we actually do need a distinctly Christian caution. And that is, if you confuse the creation with the creator, you will not find joy. But if you understand the creation as a gift from the creator that points to him, that is a sign that points to him, then you can engage a life well lived. When you worship God's gifts, they will never, ever deliver what they promise. And instead, they'll leave you empty and broken. But when we live our life as though God is the most worthy thing to live for, and when we walk with him, we'll discover that he's like a host who welcomes us into his kingdom and to the most lavish banquets to enjoy. Because he doesn't just give us food and drink and joy. He gives us himself. Can you imagine a banquet without him there? No. It wouldn't be a banquet. So, in the end, what frees us from the fear of death is not ignoring our death, but trusting Christ's death on our behalf. Because in Christ's work on the cross, he was not dying to save us from the physical realities of this life, but rather to restore us to enjoy the things of this earth the way they were intended to be and the way we were intended to receive them. And so you see, it's not really carpe diem, seize the day. As one commentator says, the message to Ecclesiastes is actually receive the day. Wake up every morning ready to receive the good gifts that God has for you and thank him for them and thank him in Christ. Christians are being redeemed by the creator of all things. And so we are learning, learning to enjoy the gifts of God in a way that we could not have before. And this is rooted in our understanding of the future. And this is what I mean. Uh, at the end of his Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis 
uh, writes this in the last battle. He points out we'll not enter into a spiritual world, but he says a deeper country. So in the last battle, the children and the animals are moving from the old Narnia to the new Narnia, where they discover that, quote, every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more than it had before. So this is a quote from Lewis. It was the unicorn. (laughs) One of my daughters loves unicorns. She would love this if she were here. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. You see, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ, we cherish eating and drinking and friendship and art and music because it looks a little like what we'll do after we die. The gifts, actually, friends, are from the real country. They smell and they taste and they feel like home, and that's why they're so enjoyable. But if we confuse them with the real thing, it will be, here's the word, vanity. It will slip through our hands. But if we understand that it's a pointer to the more full reality, we'll enjoy them as we ought. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now asking that you would, rem- you would, you would uh, take this sledgehammer to our hearts and break its grip on things of this world as though it's all we have to hope for. Help us be more generous with what we have. Help us be more uh, excited to enjoy the gifts you've given us with others. I ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and with that precision that only you have, to bring to mind and to heart in this time of reflection here in a moment those things that, in fact, we have mistaken for the real thing when, in fact, they are a sign, they are a gift that points us to the real thing. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.